I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today, in a special bonus episode, we respond to questions sent in by you, our wonderful We the People listeners. Namely, what is the meaning of the treason clause in Section 3 of Article 3 of the Constitution? What was it originally tended, intended to mean? How has it been interpreted over time? And might it be applied to recent events involving Russia's potential interference in the 2016 elections? Uh, joining us on short notice to discuss this urgently important constitutional question are two of America's leading constitutional law experts and two of the leading experts in America on the treason clause. You can find them on the interactive constitution in their contributions to the treason clause. And I want you to call it up as you're listening. Paul T. Crane is assistant professor at the University of Richmond School of Law, where he teaches criminal law. Deborah Perlstein is professor at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. Paul and Deborah, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you, Jeff. It's a real pleasure to be here. So let's jump right into the Treason Clause, Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution. As I'm speaking, dear listeners, go to the Interactive Constitution website or app and call up the clause, which says, Treason Against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid or and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person Attainted. Uh, Paul Crane, uh, you and Deborah wrote a joint explainer about the original understanding of the treason clause. What was it? Sure. Well, I guess a couple places to, to start. One, as you correctly point out, Article 3, Section 3 sets forth the limitations on the crime of treason. It's actually the only crime defined in the Constitution. And the congressional statute that uh, is on point tracks that treason clause. And one thing, or maybe two things to really notice is there's two prongs of the treason clause. There's two ways somebody can commit treason. One, levying war against them, that being the United States. Or two, adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So these there's sort of two prongs, either or, but those are the only acts that constitute treason that can be prosecuted, tried, and convicted for treason under the Constitution. And there's an additional procedural requirement, and that's that second sentence you read, that no one can be convicted absent testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or confession in open court. And that sort of procedural requirement is relatively unusual and particularly unusual in terms of constitutional limitations. And what all, I think all of these things are getting at, really what was really driving the framers, at least in a big picture sense, is they wanted treason to be a limited, relatively difficult, clearly defined and constrained thing. They were reacting against constructive treason prosecutions that happened 
and England where just thinking bad thoughts or saying bad things about the king and you could be charged with constructive treason. And the framers were really reacting against that and trying to have this defined, constrained, and narrowly so definition of treason and therefore what qualifies as treason under the Constitution. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that great summary. And thank you for both of your joint statement where you say so eloquently, the Constitution requires both concrete action and an intent to betray the nation before a citizen can be convicted of treason. Expressing traitorous thoughts or intentions alone does not suffice. And then you have this wonderful phrase, uh, Paul and Deborah, you say, to further guard against the prospect the government could use false or passion-driven accusations of treason to undermine political opponents. There's this requirement of open confession in court or testimony of two witnesses. Deborah, tell us more about the framers' fear of passion-driven accusations of treason. And then after you've given us a little more sense of the original understanding, tell us about the first cases interpreting the treason clause, in particular the ex parte Bowman case uh, from 1807 stemming out of the alleged plot led by Aaron Burr. Sure. So... uh the first, I, I, I quite agree, uh, of course, because we wrote this together with Paul's summary. Um, <laughs> the, Excellent. The Thank goodness. <laughs> we had disagreements. We worked them out long ago. But, but really, we, we quite agreed uh, from the beginning on these broad outlines. Uh, the framers were um, substantially and almost entirely occupied um, during the Constitutional Convention when they were debating um, the treason clause and what it was going to say, uh, with concerns that it would be misused, with concerns that it would be um, interpreted or applied in an overly broad way because of the history to which they were responding. And the history to which they were responding was one in which uh, accusations of treason had been thrown around, um, so to speak, uh, by uh, people who were accusing opponents of the government, legitimate, including quite commonly legitimate opponents of the government, people who disagreed with what the king was doing and so forth, um, with accusing them and then ultimately charging them uh, with the offense of treason. And the framers were deeply concerned, and you can see this identical concern reflected in, for example, the First Amendment of the Constitution, um, that the new country be one in which uh, people were free to express their disagreement with the government um, and their criticism of the government uh, and officials in the government without fear that they would be facing, you know, not only just any prosecution, but prosecution for um, a crime that was then and still is today sort of uniquely uh, rhetorically powerful, and that is treason. Um, the idea of treason and, and, and treason, which obviously as a crime predated the Constitution, had as its essential sort of underlying element this idea of betrayal. Nobody can commit treason unless they already have an allegiance to the country, right? So um, non-citizens of the United States, unless they have some special relationship to the United States we don't know about, uh, generally can't commit treason because they don't have, they can't betray a country to which they don't owe an allegiance. Um, and given this idea that if you commit treason, you're betraying something to which you uh, have a duty to, to adhere, to protect. Um, it's always carried this sort of particularly powerful um, 
rhetorical strength. It is a profound criticism, whether or not as a criminal offense, um, to levy against someone. And for that reason, uh, the framers were particularly concerned that it not be used uh, for the purpose of um, for the purpose of of naysaying or undermining one's yearly political opponents. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And we have a strong sense of the connection between the First Amendment and the Treason Clause and the fear, as you just said, Deborah, so well, uh, of not using the Treason Clause to uh, go after critics of the government. Uh, Let's take a beat on the judicial interpretations of the Treason Clause. Uh, You mentioned in your joint explainer the Bullman case uh, involving the Burke conspiracy in an important opinion by Chief Justice Marshall, where you say it's not enough, both of you say it's not enough merely to conspire to subvert by force the government of our country by recruiting troops, procuring maps, and drawing up plans. Rather, a person could be convicted of treason for levying war only if there's an actual assemblage of men for the purpose of executing a treasonable design. Paul, tell us more about that case as well as other leading Supreme Court cases such as the Kramer case from 1945 involving the Nazi saboteurs. Sure. So on the ex parte Bowman, I think you uh, well summarized it. And to me, the, the, the one thing to make sure to be clear on is this is interpreting that first prong of the treason clause, the levying war against the United States. And this is actually the only Supreme Court case interpreting that prong. All the rest are on the second prong, including Kramer and some of the other cases we'll talk about in a minute. And the the big takeaway is how narrowly, right, so there was alleged evidence of uh, men gathering, and he said this was related to the to alleged Burr plot to overthrow the American government in New Orleans. And even with alleged evidence of people conspiring and and starting to get together, the Supreme Court said that's not enough. And as uh, Professor Perlstein rightly pointed out, there's, it's important to also think about the First Amendment sort of in tandem here of, well, people getting together and voicing displeasure. The framers were reacting, again, against their the history that they knew, and they wanted that conduct to not be labeled treasonous. And so what Chief Justice Marshall said in the Bowman case was, no, we, you really, I mean, almost you have to imagine it of like people with guns marching, like anything short of that, at least for treason purposes, maybe it's a different offense, but for treason purposes, not going to cut it under that first prong. So it really sort of tracked that narrow definition that we were talking about, that at least in terms of spirit and intent, the framers seem to have. Then there was a long stretch where the Supreme Court didn't really step into interpreting the treason clause. I mean, it's one of those clauses that went for 150 plus years without getting some parts of it interpreted. And that first case that interpreted what did it mean for that second prong of the treason clause, the adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort was Kramer versus United States. And that was a case uh, Supreme Court decided in 1945, but actually first heard the case the previous term and asked for a re-argument to address the specific constitutional issues. So it's one of those cases that got re-argued and heard twice and issued in 1945, so in the World War II still going on, and it has its ties to the Nazi saboteur affair. And specifically, Kramer was a United States citizen, 
who had a friend who was a turned out to be a German soldier who came and asked for, at least from the government's perspective, some assistance while this German soldier friend, Thiel was his name, was in the United States. Specifically asked to meet with Kramer, met with him uh, twice in public places, uh, asked him to keep some money for him, which Kramer did. And eventually the FBI comes knocking on Kramer's door, asked him about it. Kramer initially lies about what happened, about his relationship, eventually then comes clean. And when the dust settles, Kramer is charged with a variety of offenses, but including treason. And this case makes its way up to the Supreme Court and is the first time the Supreme Court weighed in on what does it mean to adhere to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. And critically, what the Supreme Court does in a 5-4 decision written by Justice Jackson is it reverses the conviction for treason. And it does so based on the overt act requirement that we had mentioned and said that there was no overt acts alleged that met the requirements of the treason clause, specifically the way the court interpreted the treason clause. And this was a matter of real debate on the court and amongst the parties at the time is what does the government have to prove through its overt act on this second prong of treason, this aid and comfort. And what the Supreme Court said is the acts that the government alleges as overt acts, there we have two or more witnesses to testify to, the acts themselves must indicate that the defendant was giving aid and comfort to the alleged enemy. And what the Supreme Court said was, well, in the Kramer case, the acts that were alleged were these two public meetings, not the overt act of he asked Kramer to keep money for him because they did not have two witnesses to that event. And the Supreme Court said, well, just meeting with somebody in a public place like a restaurant, we don't know that that gives the enemy aid and comfort. And so that, under the treason clause, is not a sufficient overt act. We will reverse the conviction. Now, importantly, when it went back down, Kramer eventually pleaded guilty to a separate statute, trading with the enemy. But he was, the conviction for treason was reversed, and the Supreme Court, for the first time, started to give a meaning and interpretation to what does it mean to give aid and comfort? What's the overt act requirement have to entail? Thank you so much for that. This is so clear, dear We the People listeners. Isn't it wonderful to understand both the first prong, levying war, which was interpreted in the Burr case and requires actual assemblage with armed troops, and the second prong, as Paul has just explained it so well, where uh, you have to have both concrete action and an intent to betray the nation, uh, not just traitorous thoughts or intentions on their own. Deborah, m tell us more about... The second prong, and in particular, those textual requirements for proving an overt act, namely open confession in court or the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act. Is there some English antecedent to the two witnesses requirement? Were there cases where people have been convicted on less than two witnesses? And, and, and why was the overt act so important to the framers? 
so a, a couple of different things, right? First of all, all of these um, requirements, requiring an overt act, requiring the two witnesses in court, uh, all of and, and the other requirements of the clause, all together should be understood as ways of ratcheting up the difficulty in successfully prosecuting a treason case, right? Um, so, for example, the testimony of two witnesses uh, was intended to, establish, intended to establish a higher evidentiary uh, burden than had previously existed in which anybody could go into court and point a finger and say, yes, this person uh, has committed treason. Um, and given the concern that uh, this had been used to great effect against political enemies, um, the two-witness requirement is designed expressly to try to, at least, um, make it harder. Uh, the open confession or two-witnesses requirement, I should say, is to make it harder uh, to have that sort of, as you mentioned before, passion-driven or um, simply um, uh, you know, un- unjustifiable kind of accusation um, made against against somebody. So, so those are all trying to raise the bar to make it particularly difficult um, to prosecute treason. Um, the overt act requirement uh, is also to the same end. That is to say, let's make it harder. Uh, but it's to make it harder in the particular way I mentioned before, um, and that is while the. Uh, second prong of the treason clause, right? The uh, adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort prong of the treason offense um, could be, if you just look at the text, almost anything, right? What does it mean to adhere to an enemy? Does that mean, boy, I think Russia has the better of this argument (laughs) Um, uh, in in any given case? Uh, The overt act requirement was to make clear, and what was so significant about the Kramer decision uh, when it came down in 1945 uh, was that uh, you needed to do something more. There needed to be conduct in order to get you past the adhering to the enemy, giving the maiden comfort, right? Whatever that meant, it couldn't mean as a matter of constitutional law, simply saying you agreed with the enemy of the United States um, in a particular case. Uh, And indeed, earlier uh, treason prosecutions, so prosecutions, for example, surrounding World War I, um, had gone forward. uh, So you see them in the lower courts and in the appeals courts upholding treason prosecutions um, on a variety of grounds, but grounds that included things like uh, lying to government officials about what it was that you were doing or who you were talking to. Now, that's certainly one of the things that um, that Kramer himself was accused of doing, um, but unless it was after the Kramer decision, unless lying to government officials was part of, you know, one of a much, a longer list of elements of treasonable actions, um, it would seem no longer sufficient um, to justify uh, treason for giving aid and comfort to the enemy uh, uh, alone. Um, I will say, and we can talk about this separately as well, the limitations we've been talking about, the overt act requirement, the two witnesses or open confession and court requirement, those are, you know, as we've said, limitations on the scope of the treason clause designed to make it harder to protect, uh, sorry, harder to prosecute um, these cases. But it shouldn't pass notice that the requirement, the clause also requires that there be an enemy. That is, um, you can't just commit treason by betraying the United States in general. You have to betray the United States 
um, in a circumstance in which there is an enemy uh, to which you can give aid and comfort. And we can talk separately about what the clause might mean when it says enemy, um, because it, it, you know, the courts have had less to say about what that is. Um, but I think that, too, can be read um, as a significant limitation on the scope of the clause. Great. Well, well, let's indeed talk about the, what counts as an enemy, and in, it, it, let's use the actual treason prosecutions as examples. There have been fewer than 40 federal prosecutions for treason uh, since the Constitution, and even fewer convictions. Our great web editor, Scott Bomboy, has compiled a, a phenomenal list of them, which, if listeners uh, would like, uh, write to We the People and I can send you. But they begin with the Whiskey Rebellion, where there were several people convicted of treason in connection to the protest over excise taxes, but pardoned by Washington. There was the Burr trial, which we've discussed, where Burr was acquitted. Then there were a bunch of treason trials in the Civil War against Copperheads for conspiring with the Confederacy. And then uh, the World War II period, where in addition to the uh, case we've been discussing, Ezra Pound was arrested for treason and Tokyo Rose was convicted of it. So just bringing us up to World War II, Paul, what is an enemy and what do those cases tell us about what an enemy is? Sure. And I, and I think Professor Perlstein is exactly right that the, an, the enemy is both a really important question and one that at least the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on. Because as you've alluded to, Remember the two prongs. So you think of whiskey rebellion, some of the Civil War cases. Well, that can you don't necessarily need to be an enemy for those. You're just you are picking up arms against the United States. But for that second prong, you exactly uh, as Professor Perlstein said, you need to be adhering to an enemy, not just doing something that betrays United States interests. And up through World War II, well, that tracks. The, the times where prosecutions were brought under that prong with enemies is what I'd submit are the, the easy cases of we are in open war, usually declarations of war. And so, well, if Congress has issued a declaration of war against the country, or we are at least in active military, uh, military hostilities with the country, that's our enemy. And so the World War II cases involve uh, giving adherence and aid and comfort to either Germany or Japan. And some of those World War I cases that Professor Perlstein mentioned that didn't make their way to the Supreme Court, but similarly against those that the United States were engaged in war against in World War I. One of the really sort of, I think, interesting features, and, and, and maybe something uh, people don't quite realize, is the last, um, there is since 1954, uh, and, and, and the 1954 prosecution involved World War II. Basically, since World War II-related conduct, there has only been one person charged with treason. Only one person since World War II-related conduct, only one treason charge since 1954, and that was in 2005 during the hostilities in, in Iraq. And it was brought against somebody named Azam the American, or Azam... Um, Al-Amriki, and um, I'm sorry, I believe it was in 2006 uh, when that prosecution was brought, and uh, Azam the American was an alleged al-Qaeda member, and the United States brought treason charges. He was an American citizen that was doing these sort of promotional videos promoting al-Qaeda, promoting Osama bin Laden, and he was charged with treason. Now, he wasn't in custody at the time, and he eventually 
uh, was killed in a drone strike. So he was never actually brought uh, into custody. So never, there never was actually a prosecution that went forward. It was just the charges themselves, which has sort of left open this question of, okay, we haven't really had a treason prosecution that's moved forward since the World War II era. What does it mean to be an enemy? I, we don't know. The courts haven't explicitly spoken to this. We know that if Congress has declared war, that counts. We know probably, though I think this is an uh, area that could be subject to dispute, of if you're engaged in active military conflict with a country, they're an enemy. But we don't have at least cases that have come forward about something else. And I think that's an area where there's at least still room for uh, needed clarity and therefore room for disagreement about what it means to be an enemy, if anything, if anyone can be an enemy outside of those limited, narrow contexts. Very interesting. So Deborah Paul suggests two definitions of an enemy, a declared war and World War II is the last declared war or active military conflict, such as the conflict with Al-Qaeda, which was authorized by the Authorization of Use of Force Resolution. Uh, what do you think uh, counts as uh, an enemy? And tell us about uh, prosecutions or non-prosecutions since World War II that might cast some light on that question. So I, I think it's a fascinating and, uh, and quite right, an open question um, in these cases. Uh, and I think it's possible to say a few things based on what we know. One is, uh, right, as we were just discussing, um, look, we know that if there's actually a declared war, then the opponents and our opponents in that war count as an enemy. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to conclude from that um, that that's the only circumstance in which uh, there might be an enemy of the United States within the meaning of the treason clause. Um, and maybe just a couple of things to say here. Uh, the first is to say I think there's no argument that this is actually a question that the courts, in the event of a treason prosecution that goes forward in the absence of a declaration of war, are likely to face and to have to resolve. The treason clause itself is in Article 3 of the Constitution. It's in the part of the Constitution that gives the courts its power. So it's very hard to argue that it's not for the courts to decide who counts as an enemy and who doesn't for purposes of prosecuting the treason clause. Um, the other thing to say is uh, the Supreme Court has held in a variety of contexts, that is, in interpreting various other parts of the Constitution or statutes authorizing the use of force or statutes doing other things that depend um, on is there a war on or is there not a war on. Uh, the court has held in a variety of settings that, look, we're going to recognize the applicability of this statute or the applicability of, for example, the international law of war, um, uh, even though uh, there's been no declaration of war because, as the court said in one context in the quasi-war with France, right, centuries ago, as it said during the Civil War in the prize cases, the courts don't have to turn a blind eye to recognize, to know and to recognize, even if the parties to the conflict don't, that there's a war on. We know what it looks like, uh, and, and we'll recognize it and take account of it when a statute or any other provision of law uh, requires us uh, to do so. Things maybe uh, to say there are that in the 
lower courts in the treason cases that were making their way through the courts and you know, sort of ended with circuit decisions, never uh, made their way to the Supreme Court. Um, they talked about, uh, some of the courts talked about a state of open hostility. Um, now that's um, additional language that's not necessarily clear, but it suggests something like an objective test of actual um, violence going on. It also um, parrots what turns out to be the modern law of war, so what's in the modern Geneva Conventions that the United States is a party to, and, and so is every other country in the world, um, in which uh, those laws set a very low bar for identifying the existence of an armed conflict between, for example, one state and another state. Any resort to force between states, for example, is enough to count um, as as an existence of open hostility in those terms. Uh, so, so I think there's a there are a lot of, sort of bodies of law on which we could and on which the court might decide to draw when it's called to interpret. Um, the question of what counts as an enemy, there's the precedent now of the Adam Gadon case, which uh, Paul was talking about a minute ago, the 2006 prosecution of the uh, accused uh, member of al-Qaeda, um, in which at least the government thought, well, if you're a member of a terrorist organization with which we say we are at war, then that's probably close enough. Um, so I, I think there's some real doubt, and we can talk about how this translates in current affairs, uh, some real doubt about... Um, what what's enough to count as an enemy uh, in the context of the treason prosecution? Wonderful. Well, let's indeed talk about how this relates to current affairs. We've been had the, we had this really rigorous uh, history uh, lesson and, and textual analysis, and now the question is: Could anything that the president has done count as treason? John Brennan, the former director of the CIA, started this debate when he tweeted recently. Donald Trump's press conference performance in Helsinki rises to and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of treasonous. And yet, Paul, you said in a recent interview that Russia does not qualify. We're not at war with them. There are no active hostilities. That would be the first hurdle. Tell us more about why you believe that the fact that we're not at war with Russia means that the president's conduct or alleged conduct cannot be considered treasonous. Sure, and I and I think that is probably the main, um, or at least a main hurdle is uh, as we've been talking about, what does it mean to be an enemy? And um, I I completely agree with Pre Professor Perlstein. I think declaration, formal declarations of war is probably there's things beyond that, and uh, there are uh, uh, exactly as she pointed out these other areas of law that also turn on the enemy. There needing to be an enemy of some sort. That courts have felt comfortable with, uh, and I think um, you know uh, uh, the Hamdi versus Rumsfeld case that got to the Supreme Court about enemy combatants under the authorization uh, of use of military force um, in 2001 is another example of courts. Okay, we don't need formal declarations of war, but at least to me, the way I read the cases and sort of precedent and almost tradition is, all right, if we don't need declaration of war, we at least need sort of active military hostilities. And that seems to be at least a common thread. You know, maybe you don't, we, had, we didn't have declarations of war in the Korean War, or Vietnam War, or First Iraq War, but we had these authorizations of military force of one way or another. And, and absent that, well, what does it mean to be an enemy 
I, I, I think it's a really difficult question. And, and the concern is, well, if it's not tied to something like that, Congress in one form or another identifying a country as an enemy, well, the list could become very long depending on how, what your definition is. And that's, that's recognizing we are in a changing world and cyber attacks and cyber warfare is a real thing and how to think about that and how to try and update the provisions and concerns of the treason clause in that sort of environment is really difficult. To me, the sort of at least how I understand the best interpretation of what does it mean to be an enemy? Well, you need Congress authorizing or at least declaring or identifying a country as deserving of military force from the United States. And absent that, it just, it seems to me, it becomes more and more difficult to keep it constrained. What about economic competitors? What about political, geopolitical competitors? Are those enemies? And then how long is this list? And at least if a lot of what the clause is trying to get at is we want to keep this relatively defined, narrowly, concretely defined. Well, that starts with how do we define an enemy, while at the same time recognizing there are plenty of other statutes that can get at and prohibit the sort of conduct that people maybe at least rhetorically want to call treason or treasonous. This isn't a you know binary choice of, well, it has to be treason or something else. One of the things the Supreme Court said in Kramer was addressing this exact concern of, well, if you're worried that if we don't interpret the treason clause more broadly so we can have more room for the government to bring treason clause, uh, bring treason prosecutions, and if that doesn't happen, oh, no, no, the court said, look, Congress can pass all sorts of other statutes, and they have these other sorts of national security, protecting the national interest type statutes. Go look at those. But treason is different. We, there's a reason we have historically and legally and constitutionally treated it differently. And the how we think of what does it mean to be the enemy and how capacious do we want that definition to be is one of those areas. And now for a brief break to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment and in anticipation of the Constitution Center's new gallery on the Civil War and Reconstruction, which will be opening in 2019. We the People is, or We the People are, thrilled to announce a special summer podcast series. Starting in August, we'll feature the stories of some of the Reconstruction and Civil Wars era's most influential constitutional figures from Frederick Douglass and John Bingham to Cali House. Be sure to tune in at the beginning of August as we kick off this historical series of We the People. Deborah will take in a moment a beat on the other possible statutes that the president's alleged conduct might be subject to, but I'd like you to respond to Paul's very concrete suggestion that uh, to be an enemy, Congress has to identify a country as deserving of military force against the United States. Do you agree with that narrow definition, or is there any broader definition that might encompass Russia that you think could plausibly be incorporated under the treason clause? Oh, thanks. Look, I think, as we both said, um, it's a question left open by the courts, and it's a difficult question to answer. But 
I'm pretty persuaded it can be answered within the realm of existing tools of constitutional interpretation and ordinary tools of statutory interpretation. And I'm not convinced that there has to be some congressional declaration of war or authorization for the use of military force for the treason clause to become um, uh, possibly in play. One of the reasons why I'm not persuaded about that is a straightforward one. That is to say, uh, if, for example, the United States is attacked by another country uh, and we were not previously at war with that country, and this has happened in U.S. history, right, and, and one could argue that it's happened quite recently in U.S. history, and I'll come to Russia in just a moment, um, but if we were attacked by another country, right, and Congress hasn't yet had occasion to declare war, maybe it's going to in a few weeks' time, maybe it will eventually, maybe it won't, and the war will just go on because it's, it's existing. I don't think it would make sense at all, and I think it would be inconsistent with cases like the prize cases in which, right, South attacks Fort Sumter, and the question is, can Lincoln, President Lincoln, begin to use military force and self-defense without first getting an act of Congress to authorize the use of force. And the Supreme Court says, sure, he can. And it's in that context that the Supreme Court made to, makes its statement about, look, we don't have to wait for Congress to say there's a war on to recognize that there's a war on and that in the context of that case, President Lincoln could permissibly act in uh, self-defense without first waiting for congressional authorization. So I think I think the circumstances in which wars can arise and have arisen uh, makes it impossible to say that treason only becomes possible if Congress has first uh, sort of declared war or, or authorized the use of military force. Uh, but more than that... Um, Increasingly, uh, and, and certainly in the context of these war on terror cases, but in many cases dating back to uh, the prize cases that I, that I just mentioned um, in, in the Civil War, uh, the court has recognized that here um, the law of war, the international law of war, so treaties that the United States, that presidents have signed, the Senate has ratified, and that are the supreme law of the land under Article 6 of the Constitution, right, help inform the meaning of these terms. And here, there's a set of treaties that the Supreme Court has looked quite to quite recently in Hamdi versus Rumsfeld, indeed directed in Hamdi versus Rumsfeld, uh, we, we were required to look at in interpreting the scope of the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, um, and the Geneva Convention treaty understanding of what counts as a war, that is, when the law of war is triggered, um, is is pretty straightforward. It's not necessarily that broad, although it's a pretty low bar, um, and it is essentially any use of force by any use of armed force by um, one state uh, against another. Um, so the idea of that bar being so low is to make sure that humanitarian protections, no targeting civilians, for example, are triggered, are triggered as quickly as possible. But it also um, puts a pretty fine point on two significant pieces of events in the world, right, ongoing hostilities in the world. Now, one, and we could talk about this in much greater detail, right, is the active shooting war going on in Syria, a shooting war in which the United States has been involved for some time but began bombing Syrian targets in 2017 and indeed has targeted Russian personnel um, or has killed Russian personnel in this calendar year, including um, in an attack in February 2018. So we could talk a lot more about exactly what's happening with Syria, but I think those facts and the fact that the United States and Russia are on a battlefield 
even if not intending necessarily to have gone to war with each other, are actively shooting at each other, at least with some, um, with some occasions. Um, and then the other, of course, is the extremely important and probably more important uh, previous and ongoing efforts by Russia to uh, launch cyber attacks against the United States. And both the United States and uh, most other major countries think that just because an attack is launched by cyber methods as opposed to actual guns doesn't mean it's not a war, quite the, quite the contrary. And indeed, the most recent indictment, and here I'll conclude, alleges that um, the Russian defendants intentionally caused damage to protected computers and, and data. Um, and it's that kind of standard. Is the cyber attack causing actual damage to persons and property of a kind that one associates with war or with more conventional weaponry uh, that the United States and others have recognized might actually be something like war or armed conflict or here, uh, although the United States hasn't taken a position on the treason clause, right? One might analogize, might be enough to consider Russia an ongoing enemy. Thank you so much for that. Paul, it would be wonderful if you could respond to Deborah's very interesting suggestion that a cyber attack might possibly be considered a war under a translation of the treason clause, taking uh, account of changes in what we conceive of as war, as well as treaties like the Geneva Convention. And then just to complete our analysis of the Russia situation, hypothetically, if the cyber attack were considered a war and Russia an enemy of the United States, is there any possibility that the current situation could meet the other prongs of the treason clause, including adhering to the enemies of the United States and giving them aid and comfort. Sure, and uh, uh, and I think Professor Perlstein gives a uh, a really good argument for that view, and as strong an argument as possible. And and frankly, I if I was forced to predict what courts would do, I don't know. And I think this really is uh, arguments on both on both sides that have a lot of pull, uh, even for myself. I I think you know thinking about the cyber attack. Uh, on the one hand, sure, we're, that that could be viewed as an act of war, and therefore there's lots of reasons that that should then trigger other things associated with, well, there's the type of hostilities where we now have an enemy. I guess part of my, I, I guess I have sort of one concern and then one why I'm not so concerned if we don't treat that as an enemy. Well, does that mean anyone who is trying to commit electronic hacking, disruption of any of our infrastructure is now an enemy and therefore we can treat them the same way we would treat an enemy? Maybe, but then that seems to sort of, are we just trading one can of worms for another? Where, well, somebody who's not an official representative or not being directed by a particular state or terrorist organization commits the same acts of cyber aggression, well, do we now get to treat them the ways uh, with a legal either rights or lack of rights that we would treat a quote-unquote enemy? That gives me a little bit of pause. And then I understand a pull of like, well, well but this seems problematic. We, What are we going to do? And again, I sort of just point to, we have a lot of other statutes that are going to be able to cover this sort of conduct without needing to then sort of get into the can of worms of, well, if that's an enemy, is it the act that makes it an enemy or does it only count as government states? Well, what about non-state organizations? And it just seems to 
look for problems that maybe we can solve elsewhere through the other forms of uh, either statutes or non-treason-based prosecutions. It's not, oh, well, cyber attacks happen and there's nothing to do. No, there's plenty of other means, but maybe ones that might even be more specifically tailored. But again, I think it's a really open question, and I completely agree with Professor Perlstein that it's one that courts, if not eventually will, are in position and should be there's no, there's, I don't. I, I agree. There's no sort of argument. Of, well, this is this is outside the scope of uh, judicial determination, or as a political question, or something like that. I, I completely agree. This is a. I would be surprised if we don't eventually have court decisions on these on these sorts of topics. Thanks uh, so much for that. So, Deborah, a very interesting uh, engagement with Paul on the possibility that your definition of the enemy might be accepted by courts. Tell us about the other prongs. Is there any possibility that, given what we've already discussed, the president's alleged action could constitute both a concrete action and an intent to betray the nation, in other words, expressing traitorous thoughts and intentions? Or would you actually need an open confession in court or the testimony of two witnesses in order to convict him of alleged treason? Yeah, so um, a couple of things there. First, um, I quite agree, and, and one of the reasons, I quite agree with Paul, that is, and one of the reasons I think we haven't seen many treason prosecutions, or indeed any, between uh, 1954 and 2006, uh, is because there are so many other available federal criminal offenses with which one can charge and convict people one believes uh, are engaged, the government believes are engaged in activity against the interests of the United States. Um, I would also sort of caution slightly, I, you know, I think it's entirely possible to distinguish between cyber attacks that cause a level of damage or destruction um, that is like that one would uh, anticipate seeing with conventional weaponry from much more lower level, less harmful, and indeed not physically harmful forms of hacking and economic uh, cyber interference and, and things of that nature that we see all the time and, and also prosecute criminally all, all the time. So I, I think there is a distinction to be drawn there without opening a huge can of worms, uh, but one, of course, that will be for Congress and the courts to draw. On the question of overt um, acts, so, you know, when I heard... Uh, the former CIA director make his statement last week about nothing short of treasonous that you, you quoted earlier. Um, I took that occasion to sit down and say, okay, come on, he was just speaking rhetorically. And it was at that moment when I sketched out for myself, is there subjective intent? Is there an overt act? Is there an enemy? Uh, that it occurred to me that this was not nearly uh, as as implausible a case as I had assumed. That is, I assumed, oh, come on, this isn't actually treason as a matter of law. Um, and just as I came to the conclusion that, well, it's not as clear to me as I, as, as I had assumed it would be that Russia is not a current enemy within the meaning of the clause, it's equally not as clear to me uh, as I would have imagined that it would be that the president has not, based on reports we have already seen, engaged in overt act other than things he has said. So um, the former CIA... CIA director made his statement in the conduct in the context of the president's statements at a press conference uh, with Vladimir Putin. And my general reaction to that would be where we started. Nobody is guilty of treason simply by 
saying things. That's the whole point of the treason clause and why it's so difficult uh, to prosecute in the first place. There has to be um, some form of or collection of overt acts that makes an intent to betray uh, evident on the face of the act. But over the course of the last year, right, even apart from anything contained in whatever the Mueller uh, investigation turns up with respect to the president's own conduct, um, there have been a series of very high-profile media reports, for example, that in his meeting with visiting uh, Russian officials, the president disclosed classified information, information that had been given to the United States by another nation's intelligence service and that was highly classified. The president, of course, has the authority to declassify information if he wishes, so he can't be prosecuted for, or he almost certainly can't be prosecuted, for example, revealing classified information. But that's different from saying the revelation of classified information is a sufficient overt act to count as something that indicates an intent to give aid or comfort to an enemy, right? Similarly, um, things like lying to federal officials um, uh, who are trying to investigate an enemy's activities um, or possibly even uh, refusing to impose or enforce economic sanctions that Congress has imposed against Russia and various Russian individuals um, for the purpose of condemning and deterring their cyber activities. The president, it has been reported, um, has done at least some and maybe all of these things. Um, and those are all not just statements. Those are actions. Um, and whether or not those actions would be prosecutable of themselves as any criminal offense, um, that they might count as overt acts beyond statements uh, that demonstrate an intent to betray, that I think is a different question. And that, to my dismay, uh, seems to me suddenly quite a bit less clear. Very interesting. So Paul Deborah has made the extremely provocative suggestion that overt acts such as revealing classified information or refusing to impose economic sanctions that Congress has directed might constitute overt acts for purposes of the treason clause. Uh, and if they were proven by testimony of two witnesses, could uh, form the basis for a treason prosecution. What do you make of that suggestion? Yeah, I mean, I think, so we put the the, the question about the enemy to the side, and um, at least, you know, how much uh, taking what we know, or at least think we know, or might sort of be able to hypothesize. I, I actually think the overt act, sort of agree with Professor Perlstein, uh, I don't, I don't think the overt act is the, sort of the next biggest hurdle because while, say, in the Kramer case, it was interpreted, well, the, the overt act itself needs to be giving aid and comfort. In a case two years after that called Haupt versus United States, the Supreme Court, eight to one, affirmed a conviction for treason for giving aid and comfort involving a father helping his son get a, uh, who was, uh, had allegiance to Germany um, the father was American citizen, so was the son, and the, the son was getting, uh, helping him get a job and providing him a car. And the court said, well, these are the things that are helping aid and comfort in your son's plans. And so I, the overt act requirement isn't particularly strenuous. It does require more, as we've talked about, more than just thought or words or or sort of just expressing your view in sort of a First Amendment way. It does require some sort of conduct. But if uh, some of the uh, actions, at least alleged, or have been reported, 
I, I don't think that's the next biggest hurdle. I mean, to me, and nor necessarily that there's been two witnesses, especially anything that has been done in a public view of any sort or with other people who can who can say something happened. It's that subjective intent part, the traitorous intent that you have to show that there was also the desire to adhere to the enemies that if I was sort of trying to pick out, okay, well, what's the next biggest hurdle after enemy based? And that's just because subjective intent is always in criminal law, one of the, the most contentious and you're never really going to have a smoking gun about what's going on in somebody's mind. And so, but with respect to the overt act, sure. I, I don't think that there's necessarily any reason to think that that is an insurmountable hurdle putting aside the other requirements that that it, that there might be things that would under existing law and doctrine qualify i i think the bigger hurdles are elsewhere but on the overt act requirement i, I sort of i think have uh, a similar reaction of maybe that of of the different limitations or restrictions is actually not as big a hurdle as some of the others very interesting. So, Deborah, we're now focusing on the question of what it means to adhere to the enemies of the United States and the question of proving intent to betray. And Paul has just suggested that revealing classified information or refusing to impose sanctions might not necessarily be evidence of that subjective intent. What's your response? How do we interpret the adhering to the enemies requirement? And what's the connection between the challenge of proving this part of the crime to the difficulties of proving alleged collusion? So, I guess, uh, again, a couple of things. Um, first, I, I agree with I'm sorry to be so agreeable, but I agree with Paul. I think the <laughs> intent fine. to betray... I'm, yeah. Um, I think the intent to betray here is to the extent we're actually doing legal analysis, right, of the, the offense of treason. I think that's always the toughest. And the analogy that comes to mind, um, of, uh, you know, in, in current news and ev events have been discussions of obstruction of justice, right? There, there's similarly um, a, a version of an intent requirement that also becomes very difficult uh, to, to decide if it exists and to prove if, if a prosecutor does decide uh, if it exists. And for that reason, you've seen many uh, lawyers and others who have talked about obstruction of the possible obstruction of justice charges uh, against the president being a real question that Mueller uh, and potentially others are going to have to to face whether they think they could credibly prove this even setting aside the constitutionality of an indicting the president which is a separate a separate issue of course um so i agree intent to betray uh, is is going to be a significant hurdle here um you know and I want to add two further caveats. One is, um, I don't think on its face and standing alone, presidential refusal to carry out um, something Congress has has instructed the president to do is an indication of an intent to betray the country. Neither do I think that the revelation of classified information standing alone uh, indicates an intent to betray. As with any prosecution for any criminal offense, you use these pieces of evidence as part of a picture that you develop 
in connection, in conjunction with other pieces of evidence uh, that helps establish what is essentially an unprovable or an unknowable thing, namely what is it that was going on inside this individual's head at the time that these actions were taken. Standing alone, right, plenty of presidents have dragged their heels in carrying out Congress's um, uh, appropriations or, for that matter, sanctions requirements. Plenty, well, I don't know about plenty of presidents, but I am confident that other presidents have decided to declassify previously classified information. So there's no question that presidents can do that without having any intent to betray their country. Here, the problem is, of course, these actions are not standing alone. Uh, they are standing in the context of a large number of media reports and existing indictments and public statements of the president um, and other things uh, that are part of the reason why the country is in uh, the kind of turmoil, or at least the government is in the kind of sort of political crisis uh, that it's in now, namely the concern that it is difficult to explain uh, some of the president's recent actions without resort to concern that something else besides an effort to carry out the best interest of the United States is going on. Do I know the answer to that question? No. Uh, neither do I know the answer to the question of, of collusion, which I should hasten to add isn't, a, isn't of itself a criminal offense. People use the term collusion popularly, but typically they're referring to a kind of campaign finance violation or fraud against the United States or other specific crimes that, that carry their own elements under federal law and are problematic, to be sure, but just aren't called collusion. Um, I don't know the answer to any of those things. I, I hardly want to pretend that I do. To the extent I think we're likely to see any actual prosecution here, and I, I'm not sure if I think that's likely at all. I think it's almost certain to be for one of these other kinds of offenses, namely obstruction or fraud or tax fraud or uh, various forms of campaign finance violations or some other things, then we are likely to see a prosecution for treason. Uh, not just because um, treason carries such difficult burdens with it, although, you know, as I tried to indicate, I think not necessarily insurmountable difficulties, um, but not just because of that, but because of, of what that would mean uh, for the country, for any uh, uh, federal prosecutor, whether Robert Mueller or uh, Department of Justice under a subsequent administration, to pursue a prosecution for a former president of the United States uh, for treason. Thanks so much for that. So, Paul, one, one thing we've learned in this extremely illuminating discussion is that the Burdens for a possible treason prosecution are less insurmountable than well the, the, than I had imagined before the conversation began. But Deborah suggests that it, a treason prosecution is still less likely than one for other crimes. And we know, of course, that the conventional view is that the president cannot be criminally prosecuted while in office. However, I'd like to ask you about impeachment. The impeachment clause, Article 2, Section 4, says the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So we know that treason is a paradigmatic high crime or misdemeanor. Is it possible in an impeachment proceeding that Congress could resolve some of the ambiguities we've been talking about in favor of concluding that treason occurred and that articles of impeachment could plausibly be brought for treason? 
I think that's an extremely fascinating uh, per- uh, concept, particularly Congress uh, getting involved. And, and for that matter, they, we don't necessarily need to wait for uh, a hypothetical impeachment proceedings for Congress if they wanted to, to give more specific definitions about how they interpret the treason clause. Right now, the, the, the treason statute just sort of tracks the language you see in the clause. They could, if they wanted to, sort of weigh in on these, some, of, some of those questions. At the same time, it would be, and I think, um, at least when it comes to what is the meaning of treason under the treason clause, under the Constitution, uh, up to the courts to source, at least would have the opportunity to be the ultimate arbiters. Not that a court would step in for an impeachment proceeding. That's, that's gonna, they, they will leave that to the Congress. But in terms of what maybe putting more interpretation, more, more clarification for some of these open-ended or at least gray area still concepts, uh, whether it was through an impeachment process or just through normal congressional statute, I think would actually probably be a welcome uh, development for Congress to do. Deborah, if you were advising congressional Democrats who have indicated that they may bring impeachment proceedings if they win the House, should they include treason in the articles of impeachment? And if so, what should the articles look like? That's an enormous question, um, and, and one that goes well beyond uh, merely constitutional law, but is fair enough. I think for reasons that um, my constitutional law professor, Larry Tribe, uh, and others um, have laid out, that it's a mistake for Democrats um, to base their campaign for the House on the promise to bring allegations of impeachment. I think it's a mistake for a variety of reasons, um, and I think it's certainly a mistake uh, in the absence of the conclusion or at least um, allowing the ongoing, incredibly important Department of Justice investigation to reach further into the realm of presidential action. Now, let's imagine for a minute um, that sometime in the future, and hopefully the not-too-distant future, the Mueller investigation is either concluded or has produced substantial enough public findings uh, that uh, Congress or the House is able to then launch its own credible investigation, right, uh, beyond just the existing and very limited investigation that the House has done so far, um, and concluded that impeachment may be warranted, would I advise them to consider using treason as a basis uh, for impeachment on the basis of what we know now? I would certainly advise them not to foreclose that possibility uh, pending the results of the uh, Mueller report and their own in- investigation. But the last thing I, I want to do um, in arguing that, look, treason is not as legally implausible, as I had initially assumed either, right? The last thing I want to do is assume the conclusion of the right application of the treason clause here. Uh, And for as many disagreements as I have with this president and his conduct, um, the last thing I want to do is give this president and his conduct a basis for undermining processes that I believe are otherwise incredibly important, including the process that 
the prosecutor is currently, or the uh, Robert Mueller is currently undertaking in the Department of Justice, and the process that I believe the House should undertake before considering impeachment of any president. Thank you so much for that. How great to have studied constitutional law with Professor Tribe, and I want to put in a plug for the recent podcast we ran of my memorable conversation with Joshua Matz, uh, Professor Tribe's co-author on a book on impeachment, where uh, Tribe and Matz counsel against impeachment on current facts, but say that the Andrew Johnson impeachment should have been brought as a treason prosecution uh, rather than uh, for a technical violation of the Tenure in Office Act. And it would be great to get their thoughts on the conversation we're discussing today about treason and impeachment in the current context. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this absolutely uh, fascinating, illuminating, and surprising conversation. And I'm going to ask the obvious one, although it's not an easy one to answer. As concisely as possible, I'm going to ask you whether on the current facts you think there is a plausible, if not a definitive, case to be made that the president committed treason. And we'll begin with you, Paul. Uh, and, and let me also just thank you for for inviting me and in, uh, this wonderful conversation with you and, and Professor Perlstein. Uh, so I mean, part of the the lawyer in me says, "Oh, you want me to make a plausible argument? Well, I can make a plausible argument for almost anything." But uh, I I just think that the enemy prong is uh, at least as I best understand it, and and sort of almost if um, we're uh, hoping for how it would be interpreted to keep it sort of relatively narrow and constrained and rely on other statutes uh, is just too big of a hurdle. And, and the traitorous intent, I think, is also just a really big hurdle based on what we know with admitted caution. And as a former federal prosecutor myself, I'm sort of also very hesitant to weigh in until we actually have everything in front of us. Uh, but I believe based on at least what we know, the hurdles related to enemy and traitor's intent are just too high that that would not be a reasonable conclusion that I personally could draw while recognizing arguments on the other side. Thank you so much for that uh, extremely thoughtful uh, closing thought. And Deborah, the last word is to you. Based on the facts as we currently know them, do you believe that there is or is not a plausible case that the president of the United States committed treason? I believe there's a plausible case to be made that Russia is a sufficient enemy uh, to count for purposes of the treason clause, and that based on what we know already, uh, there is at least one and perhaps more overt act, namely the revelation of classified information, uh, that uh, one might find useful or at least plausible uh, in the realm of evidence supporting a treason prosecution. But I can't say on the basis of what we uh, know currently that I can make a plausible case uh, of an intent to betray. I think uh, there is a significant amount more uh, that we would need to know. I think it's knowable. I think I think there is I think there is a lot yet to be discovered, and there are investigations ongoing. Um, I think equally, there's a lot we don't know about the Russians. Um, cyber capabilities and, and, more importantly, the Russian cyber actions with respect to the United States in the past and, and as continues today. Um, so I want to reserve the I want to reserve the possibility of saying uh, there may be something more uh, than a plausible case. But as it stands, 
Um, I don't want to say that it's remotely certain that the president could uh, be uh, charged with treason, nor do I want to be heard to recommend uh, that that's a charge that uh, uh, the Department of Justice or, for that matter, the Congress should yet pursue without knowing the full scope of what's really going on here. Thank you so much, Deborah Perlstein and Paul Crane, for a rigorous, lawyerly, and extremely illuminating conversation. You have provided us with a model for helping our listeners separate passion from reason and to think through as methodically as possible the arguments for and against this extraordinarily important and open constitutional question. Deborah, Paul, thank you so much for joining. Thank Thank you you. for having us. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team of the National Constitution Center. And finally, dear We the People listeners, remember always when you wake and when you sleep that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. All of this great content we're producing, including the incredible conversation you heard today, is made possible only because of the generosity, passion, and engagement of people like you from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast, and as a special token of thanks. If you join as a member at the level of $250 or more, I will be so honored and so excited to send you a copy of my new book on William Howard Taft, Our most judicial president and presidential chief justice wrote the leading opinion on executive power, which is relevant to today's great discussion about the treason clauses. And it would be such a pleasure for me to send you the book and to welcome you as a member of the National Constitution Center family. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I am Jeffrey Rosenberg.